one of the things that you notice as you look at the scriptures is the restoration of God's people is never a pristine process. It's never this kind of clean, straight line. Someone makes a decision and then puffs out their chest and moves forward, never to trip or stumble. It's never like that. It's not like that in our experience. It's not like that in Scripture. There are pitfalls. There are, there are cutbacks. There are difficulties in this walk with God. It's not easy. And as we see in Nehemiah, too, we see in Nehemiah, God's doing this great thing. He's, he's rallying his people to fulfill this promise of seeing Jerusalem restored, of seeing worship come back, the worship of God come back to God's people, of God's people being restored to a place where they're worshiping in spirit and in truth. God's doing this work. He's restoring not just Jerusalem, but he's restoring his people. And there's good things happening. At this point, Nehemiah, the wall's built halfway up. There's no gaps except for where the gates still need to be hung. And we're talking about a 25-foot wall, so halfway up's about 13 feet. And so they already have some defenses from the outside. All those who are involved building the walls have come inside Jerusalem, remember? And they're staying there for safety's sake. And yet, as they go through this process, what happens there's these internal problems that are exposed, these really class struggles that are exposed among God's people. And it's difficult. It's not pretty. And we need to understand this. We need to understand that in our midst, even as believers, as God's people in our midst, there are different groups of people at different stages. And because of that, there's different areas of conflict. Nehemiah starts off this section saying that there's this great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. This is Jews complaining about Jews. And it's important that Nehemiah says, and their wives. Because this was a patriarchal culture. The husband would speak for the family. So when, when Nehemiah notes that the wives were also complaining, it's showing how desperate things had become. That you can, I, I have this picture in my mind, men coming just embarrassed and destitute and feeling like I can't provide for my family and then bring in their families to show this is really bad, we're in a real need. And as they say to Nehemiah, this, things are really difficult, we need help, that even the wives can't hold back. And they burst out saying, it is this bad, Nehemiah. Things are really bad. We're really desperate. And really what you have here is you have a picture of the desperately poor among God's people. And really Nehemiah describes three groups that came to him. The first were the, the large families that just couldn't make enough, they couldn't earn enough to survive. Now, now we have to be clear about this too. The fact that they're building this wall the wall building isn't creating the crisis. We're going to see next week or in a couple weeks that they built the whole wall in 52 days. So an economic crisis doesn't happen, uh, not in this, in, in this kind of society, in 52 days. So th there was already some really desperate times economically. But what this building project does, what this, this wall building project does, is expose how bad things actually are. They're in a desperate place. The second group he, he, he talks about are these who have mortgaged their lands. That these are those who have large debts that have been acquired during this economic downturn. The first group probably didn't, weren't landowners. They were just those who worked the land. 
But the second group were those who were landowners, but they were in massive debt. They had to mortgage their land. It mentions in verse 9, I think it is uh, about this famine. Somewhere in here it mentions the famine. I can't remember which verse. But there's a famine. And don't, don't think of like what we've seen on TV with kind of these massive famines. Think basically this. If you have one bad crop, that local uh, group is going to be, everything, all their produce is going to go way up high in price. And there's going to be less to go around. And it's, that's the kind of famine it is. There's a real scarcity here. And that's all it takes is one bad prop. And it says what they're doing in verse 3, it tells us that what they were doing is they're mortgaging their houses, they're borrowing money or, or mortgaging their property, borrowing money against their property so that they can buy the things that they need that are at an inflated price, hoping that someday what will happen in the future is they'll be prosperous again and they can pay that back. It's a very common practice, isn't it? It was common on that day, it's still a common day today. People borrow money hoping that, okay, we'll just borrow this now and hopefully I'll get that raise. We'll just borrow this now and hopefully you'll get that job. But it's a really dangerous practice as well. The third group of people he, he mentions here in verses 4 and 5 are, are these who have major large tax bills. So much so that they've, they have these tax bills. So these are, again, part of the second group as well where they've mortgaged their property. They've kind of had to buy the food. But then this tax bill comes in from Artaxerxes, the Persian Empire, the emperor. And they're thinking, how am I going to pay this? Because to not pay the emperor is to basically risk death. And so they are in a desperate place actually uh, sort of giving their kids, their children over, selling their, their children over to slavery. That sounds extreme, I know, but to our ears, but this, all, again, was unfortunately a common thing that would happen. Now, it's, it's important that we, we recognize these kinds of loan practices, these kinds of, of, of things where you're having to sort of get loans off your property or borrow money from somebody else or even putting your kids into, your children into debt service to pay off some of those debts. This was common among all the nations. All the nations live like this. They survive like this. I mean, we, we, we feel the pressure of, in our culture today, of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. We feel that pressure. But the truth is, is that most of us, by the rest of the world's standards, are all pretty wealthy. Our standard of living is pretty high. And there's an, a, a reality as well that the separation between rich and, rich and poor, though it's, it's getting worse and worse all the time, it's nothing like it was in Nehemiah's day. And these, these practices, these immoral practices, they were common among the other nations, but God had specifically called His people to live differently. God had called His people to have a different standard when it came to these kind of everyday needs. Let me give you some scriptures to, to think about. should be on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, God says this as He makes covenant with Israel. He says, If there is any among you a poor man, as there is among you a poor man of your brethren, within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut, shut your hand from your poor brother. You shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware lest there's a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. 
and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he, he, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give it to him. Your heart should not be grieved when you give it to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all which you put your hand. For the poor, poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor uh, and your needy in your land. Do you see what God says to His people? You notice He says too, to your brother, to your brother, to your brother. Notice it's also not just the act. He says, open your heart to them. Don't go, man, i got to give this guy some money. i got to loan him some grain. Don't have that attitude, God says. He, he calls His people who He's in covenant with. God makes a merciful covenant with people who wanted nothing to do with Him And part of that covenant is they would display back, they would display that goodness, that mercy toward one another by being willing to be quick and generous and joyful givers to to each other. That's what he calls them to. Now you might think, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I'm so glad we've learned that lesson. Hey, listen, in the West, as generous as we are, Great Britain's one of the most generous countries in the world, as generous as we are, and as Christians, as much as we know we need to be generous, and I know that many of you are really, really, really generous, as much as that's the case, let's not deceive ourselves into thinking we can't fall into the same trap. Where we, out of desperation, start bowing the knee, so to speak, to the wealthy because they hold all the cards. Where we stop, start showing favoritism and kind of push aside the poor. As believers in the church, we can do this. James writes about this. Listen to this. James says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom He promised to those who love Him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into courts? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good that you obey the royal Law, as it's found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, in this context, you favor the rich over the poor, you are committing a sin, and you're guilty of breaking the law. This is as much of a New Testament problem as it is an Old Testament problem. We can be those who fail to represent the goodness and mercy, the generosity of our God, even in our own midst. I recently had to ask a relative for a loan. Never done it before. And when I asked for the loan, they were super gracious and like, sure, do you need more? I'll send you more. They were, they were just amazing about it. And I got off the phone with, with this relative and I wept because I was ashamed of being in need. I was ashamed. The truth is, the needs that we happen to have now are really nothing to be ashamed about. It's just a season. We're okay. But it's amazing how we still, in our culture, are ashamed by our poverty. And that's not what the Scripture shows. The Scripture doesn't say, hey, you're great if you're rich and you're lacking if you're poor. Something's wrong with you if you're poor. That's rubbish. That might be on God's channel, but it's not in Scripture. 
There's no shame in our poverty, whether it's real or relative. There might be shame, shameful re- realities about how we spend our money. There's, there's no doubt about that. We can be guilty of misspending our money, and we need to re- be repentant about that. There's no doubt about that. But the fact that we have less doesn't make us less loved by God. Nor should we push people like that aside. By American standards, I grew up very poor by American standards. (laughs) That's a caveat, okay. We were actually homeless for about four weeks, my dad and I snuck into the place where he worked and slept on the floor. Used to go to my friend's house to take a shower. Only four weeks, I wasn't even out in in the elements, wasn't even sleeping rough, but that four weeks, man, it did some serious damage to me. I got suspended four times for fighting during that time at school because I was just an angry, frustrated, depressed mess. And that was just four weeks sleeping on a mattress with a you know, warm blanket, not out in the street. I think we need to really understand this. And I, 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 if I'm coming across heavy-handed, no, I'm coming across heavy-handed against myself. Because in my shame about my periods of poverty, I have looked down on those people that are poor. I heard voices of other relatives of mine saying, if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. And so I've been working since I was 11 years old. And you feel ashamed that God never intends us to, to feel. There are desperately poor among God's people. And I, and I just want to be honest here. I don't, I don't have an answer for what I'm about to bring up. I honestly don't have an answer. But, you know, I, I think about the fact that we can send money anywhere in the world, and there are literally millions of brothers and sisters in Christ who are in desperate need far beyond what we are. I think, Lord, I don't know what to do about that. What's happening here as there's a really good progress being made with the restoration is it's exposing there's still a lot of need for restoration in the hearts of God's people. Major change that needs to take place. But there's also not just the desperately poor amongst God's people, there's also the cynically hard among God's people. In verse 6, what happens? Nehemiah It says in verse 6 that he says, I became very angry and I heard their outcry when I heard their outcry in these words. And then after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers. Now we'll read later on about Nehemiah when he's angry at the children of Israel for something else. He pulls out their hair and plucks out their beard. I wish I could justify that sometimes. (laughs) this, This guy is just not afraid to get it in someone's face, basically. But here's what's interesting about this. It says that he's very angry, but after thought, after very serious thought. In other words, we know this is righteous anger because of his righteous response. He brings a rebuke. There's nothing unrighteous about a rebuke. Oftentimes a rebuke is the very right thing to do. But he waits. You get a sense that he's wrestling with this and saying, God, you've got to give me the heart for this. And as we'll see, I think in the context, he's even wrestling with his own heart. Where have I fallen short? And so he rebukes these nobles and rulers who are making these bad loans. And he says to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. 
And so I called the great assembly against them, and he said, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? And of course, they're silent. Now what he's referring to here is, remember, remember what we're talking about in Nehemiah. This is a generation of people who, some, several years before, uh, the generation had been sent, uh, maybe a hundred years before, the generation had been sent into captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed. So Judah's in captivity, but God said to them, God had promised them through Jeremiah the prophet before they went into captivity that they'd be there for 70 years for a very specific reason as well. You'd be there for 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back into the land, and I'm going to restore Jerusalem, and I'm going to restore you back to me. And he said, remember, you'll, you'll, you'll seek me, then you'll seek me with all your heart, and you'll find me, he says. And so we're now about 30 years into the process. The temple's been rebuilt, but the walls are just now being rebuilt. They're in that process. And so he, when that process started, not only did a first group go to Jerusalem to start doing these building projects, but also they were going to these other lands where the, the children of Israel had been scattered and bringing them back into the land, buying them back from slavery so they could go back to the land and work the land and rebuild Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah is bringing up this, this irony. He's saying, okay, so we worked really hard to redeem our brothers and sisters from slavery, but now we're going to put them back into slavery to ourselves. It's nuts. Why would we do that? And so he says to them in the, in the next part of verse 7, last part of verse 7, he says to them, no, listen, we shouldn't be doing this. And they knew. They, as soon as Nehemiah just puts it out there, as soon as they kind of hear the words, you, I get this picture of these guys going, there's nothing to say. Just, just their mouths are stopped. They know they're ultimately totally guilty. You see, what's going on here is God had, as we read in Deuteronomy, God has a unique he gives a unique command to his people in the way they treat each other. God desires to demonstrate his character, the kind of God he is, by how we treat each other. How we obey his commands. And he calls them to this. I'll give you some more examples. Leviticus. I know you guys all read that this morning, right? Leviticus chapter 25. He says, if, your brethren becomes, if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, you shall help, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner. In other words, be hospitable, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him. Notice, take no usury or interest from him. That's what these guys are doing. But fear your God that your brother may live with you. You should not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Again, he's, he's, he's given a special command to his covenant people to show the kind of covenant God that he is. Deuteronomy 23. He says, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. 
To a foreigner you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you set uh, your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. That's, I've got to be really clear. What, what, what God's saying here to his covenant people, he's not saying banking is bad. He's not saying that. The banking industry is bad. There's issues with the banking industry, I think we all know. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's trying to say here is, you, as my people, are meant to live in a different way. You're meant to have a unique relationship with one another. This is what you're called to. And these guys had totally just gone directly against this. They were that hard-hearted. Now, interesting, he says in verse 9, he says, what you're doing is not good. We need to hear this, don't we? We need to hear when we're not doing well. Now, we need to hear when we're doing well. We should be the kind of people that are quick to say, well done, I see God working in you. It's awesome to see you grow. That's a good choice there. Well done. But we should also be the kind of people to say, man, that's not good. What you're doing there is not good. Nehemiah says, what you're doing is not good. He says to them in verse 9, should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of our enemies? He goes on in chapter 10 to talk about Nehemiah says, look, I'm selling grain. I'm not going to charge uh, usury anymore. He, he, he sets an example. I want to talk more about Nehemiah's example next week at the end of the chapter. But suffice it to say, what he's doing here is, he, he's saying, listen, don't you know that how you obey God reveals something to unbelievers about God. Israel was meant to be an, uh, a light to all the other nations. And Nehemiah is saying, don't you understand? The other nations are reproaching us. They're mocking us. They're making fun of us. And not just because our wall's broken down, but because of how we treat each other. I spoke to two separate people this week, one from the States, one from here, two non-believers, I should say, who had some heart-breaking stories about the bad witness of Christians to them. And I'm not talking about Christians making mistakes. I'm talking about Christians purposely choosing to do things that are utterly hypocritical. We all mess up. I'm talking about in one scenario where the unbeliever makes the, falls into the kind of sin that the believer had fell into years before. And when the believer had fell into it years before, the unbeliever actually ministered to them and said, fight for your marriage. Fight for what's good in your life. Don't give up. Let me support you. So that when the unbeliever falls into the same thing, the believer cuts him off. It's called hypocrisy. In the other scenario, a good friend of mine who happens to be Muslim and I were talking about punishment, talking about dealing with crime, dealing with difficulties in our groups, our social groups. And he was asking me about how we do with that in the church. And he, I was kind of sharing him the discipline process that we have in church that you know, we, we do try to be very, very gracious. We've only disciplined three people out of the church in our 14-year history, each of those took about a year and a half before we actually said, look, you're obviously not wanting to repent. You're going to need to go. And his, his response was, that's just too weak. 
you should boot them out right away. And so we talked a lot about the mercy of God, which you know, is something that was hard for him to swallow, the grace of God, hard for him to swallow. But then as we talked, he said, I can see why you do that, and I can see how that's a good thing to do. But, and he gives me all these examples of all the Christians he knows who do all kinds of things that he knows, because he's, he's a bright guy, he's read the scriptures himself, he knows that God would not allow, and they say they're Christians, and they do these things. And nobody does anything about it in the church. Not our church, but the church at large. Folks, listen. When I talk about cynically hard people in this context of Nehemiah, we're talking about believers who are called to walk with God for the benefit of other people. They're called to fear God. You know why? Because all of us as believers are called to walk with God this way. To reverence Him. The Bible says in um, the book of Romans, Paul is writing to basically religious hypocrites. He's, He's kind of He's kind of, not, not that the Romans were religious hip- hypocrites, but he's writing to, about religious hypocrisy. And he says, you who say it's wrong to commit adultery, but you say it's wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but then do you use items stolen from pagan temples? He says, you're so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scripture says the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. Listen, it is not hypocritical for Christians to sin. It's not. It's expected, as we see it all throughout Scripture. It's hypocritical of Christians to say they don't sin or to say, hey, you can't sin this way and then go sin the same way. And it's also hypocritical of Christians to not be repenting of their sin. And this is the thing that I see more often, more and more, we're living in a culture where the church in the West more and more wants to act like repentance is kind of a nice option for really spiritual people, as opposed to what God calls us to be. God calls us that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. To, to, To repent is to turn away from your sin because you're saying, I might want the sin, but I want God more. I want God more. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. I believe Christ died for me so that I could be completely forgiven, so I could be accepted, so I could be adopted into God's family. And because he's done that for me, I want to turn to him in repentance. I want to turn away from every sin, everything that God shows me. I want to do the things that he calls me to. Why? Because I know he loves me and I can trust him. So that every time I fail, because I know what Christ did is enough, I'm going to turn back to God and say, God, I failed again. Forgive me. Give me the grace to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Anything less than that gives, in Paul's words, the Gentiles a reason to blaspheme. This is what God calls us to. Now, in talking about these things, the desperately poor among God's people and the cynically hard among God's people, there's some good news. (laughs) There's some good news. And the good news is this is an opportunity for us to grow as God's people. Even this, this, the brokenness that we see among us, there's an opportunity to grow. Look what Nehemiah calls them to do in verse 11. He says, Restore now then, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, uh, and also a hundredth of the money. It's probably the interest that was gained on it. 
uh, and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Why don't we restore all this stuff? Now, what's interesting is of all the verses we read, okay, it wasn't wrong necessarily to loan and expect to get the same back. So they weren't wrong. It wasn't unbiblical. It wasn't illegal, according to God's law, to loan your brother, you know, 100 pounds and expect 100 pounds back. That's not illegal, according to the Old Testament law. That was legal, okay? Of course, these guys were doing what was illegal, what God said not to do. They were charging interest or usury or both. Usury is just like an extra fee for using it. They were charging for both, okay? But now what Nehemiah is calling them to is something bigger than this. Nehemiah isn't just saying, okay, just make sure that you make sure that your loans are legal. He's not just saying that. He's not saying make sure your loans are legal. He, in fact, he's not saying either that you need to do kind of a better interest rate. It's interesting because uh, this interest rate, if it's 100, that meant probably a, a month's worth, that meant like a 12% interest rate. Uh, annual interest rate. That's actually really cheap considering that we know from other historical documents that the surrounding nations would charge anywhere from 20 to 60% interest rate when they would loan stuff out. And so you wonder if these rich guys were going, well, I'm much, I'm much more fair in my business than, than these heathens. But Nehemiah says, no, it's not just a lower rate. It's not just a legal rate. I want you to give them back all their stuff including the interest that you gained, so they have all their need. I am calling you to radical generosity. Not just the minimum letter of the law, but radical generosity. See, what, what, what he's talking about here is being eternal-minded in our investments. It's thinking about the way we steward our money, thinking about how does this impact people's lives for eternity. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6. He says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose hope. And he's talking about reaping financially, if you read the, the context. He's talking about sowing financially, if I'm sorry, if you see the context. Therefore, he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. We should be investing in those who are of the household of faith. That should be a priority. Now, what happens? He says this to these guys in verse 12. I love what happens. The first part of verse 12, what does it say? And so they said, we will restore it, and we will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. See, here's, here's how this good, this growth comes about in these situations. It starts with, listen, with public repentance. I wonder what would happen if I said, all right, it's time for us to get right with God. I want you to stand up and confess if you've been a bad student of your money. Share where you spent your money wrong. Ask for God's forgiveness in front of all of us. I wonder what would happen. I could guess. Nothing. Because you, like myself, would be too ashamed to stand up and say that. Yet there's something about public repentance. There's something about us verbalizing what we've done wrong to our brothers and sisters. Now, there's got to be wisdom with this. I know of a story where 
there was a time of a service where they were letting people pray out and even publicly repent if they needed to. And a person, a woman stood up and prayed out and said, I, I just need to confess. She's crying in tears. I confess to, to the affair that I'm having with Pastor so-and-so. And everyone's like, oh, oh my goodness. And so the, 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 sort of the, the ushers and leaders kind of grab her and grab the, the, that pastor and take him into the other room. What's going on? He's like, oh, I haven't done anything, I swear. You know, he's, he's freaking out. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. He's never, he didn't know about this affair. It's just me. I'm lusting in my heart. And so I needed to confess that. <laughs> Please don't ever do that. <laughs> you can imagine how difficult that would have been. And the truth is, I think our confession should be dictated by uh, who we've sinned against. In other words, if we are struggling to treat our spouse well, guess who we should confess to? Our spouse. Hey, forgive me. I haven't been loving. I haven't been patient. Forgive me. If we've neglected our kids, who should we confess to that to? Our kids. But if we've neglected the church, who should we confess that to? The church. Someone who's in the church. Anyone else this does? It makes us accountable. It's amazing how sins that we seem to enslave us, just habits we, good things we can't seem to get in the habit of doing, bad things we can't seem to stop doing, that if we go to a trusted brother or sister and we say, I'm struggling, would you pray for me? I am doing this or I am not doing this and I need your help. That just even verbalizing that to that brother and receiving prayer, something's broken. When we do this, It's important that we recognize, too, repentance is more than just confession. Confession is part of it, but it's not all of it. When Paul had called the Corinthian church to, to walk in repentance, he described what that looked like in their lives. He's commending them for what it looked like in their lives. Listen to this. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. 2 Corinthians 7.11 says, Just see what this, uh, what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness, such a concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Nothing casual about that repentance there, is there? It was more than just saying, okay, this was bad, I admit it. It was saying, I, I, I want to be clear of this. I, I want this out of my life. I want to deal with this stuff. The Bible says in James chapter 5, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We underestimate what God wants to do and we begin to be open in our prayers. It does begin, listen, the, the restoration between us, a lot of it does begin with simple Public repentance. Again, public doesn't mean everyone has to know, but you're making yourself known to others. It develops, though, with more than that. In verse 12, what happens? The second part of verse 12, after they say, we'll do this, Nehemiah says, then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. And then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and his property who does not perform this promise. Now, the shaking out of a garment, shaking the, the fold of the garment, is very similar to kind of kicking the dust off your feet. It's a way to say, I, I'm breaking loose from this. May God break you loose if you're not serious about keeping this. 
Remember he had said earlier, should you not walk in the fear of God? This is basically them recognizing the fear of God, that we serve a God who's just, a God who doesn't wink at sin, a God who deals with sin, both for the believer and the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, the way God deals with sin is eternal separation. That's serious stuff. For the believer, the way God deals with sin is, 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 is judgment and testing, where there's a purification. There's a, often a chastening before that day that God does in our life. So, so when I'm talking about the fear of God, I'm, I am talking about something more than just like, I really have a, a, a mad respect for God. I'm talking about something bigger than that. I'm talking about, whoa, this, this is the creator and king of the universe. I know this is hard. It's hard because we don't like the idea of anybody having that much authority. But guys, listen, if there's not someone with that much authority, there'll never be justice. But because there is someone with all authority, the creator God, there will be justice. And he calls us to cry out to him for mercy because he says, if we confess our sins, repent of our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, this growth, even in these really tricky, difficult situations, this growth develops with a God-fearing commitment. I, I have to say, this is one of the things that we're trying to encourage you guys and help you grow in by saying, would you commit to a team? Would you pray about signing up and doing this stuff? Would you pray about committing to a small group? It's not trying to control you. It's trying to get you to grow, help you grow. You don't grow without God fearing commitment. And if you make that commitment just because, well, John says, and he's going to bug me again, it's going to get annoying, well, then that's not going to count. Because if you can't do it from faith, it's sin, the scripture says. No, we're talking about saying, God, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to do what you call me to do. Now, I don't know for sure what God wants you to commit to. I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I think he knows. I think he's able to show you what that should be. These guys were committed to fall through and not charge usury to their brother, not charge interest, and also generously give back to them so that this famine, this scarcity, would be dealt with. And what happens at the end? In verse 13, the end of verse 13, it says, and all the assembly, that's those who came to be a witness, but the, the, it's interesting because the way the Hebrew is written here, it seems to indicate everyone, including the nobles. Not just the guys witnessing, not just uh, the, the poor, everyone said, Amen, and it says they praised the Lord. The word for praise there means they celebrated. Does it seem like a weird place to celebrate? You've just been completely exposed to be charlatans, even though you're supposed to be God's people. You would think they'd just kind of walk away, you know, sulking and sucking their thumb and I'm a bad, bad man. But what do they do? Amen. Praise you, Lord. Why? Because there's this great release when we repent. When we turn back to God and deal with the things that separate us as his people. When we turn back to God and say, God, I've been wrong in this thing. Forgive me. I want to walk in the fear of you. I want to reverence you and obey you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. There's a release that leads to joy. And that's New Testament. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Notice, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. There's two ways you can grow a church. One is to give the people what they want. You can grow a church that way. I'm serious. If you, if you, you can learn to be, you can be, you can make people feel good. You can give them just enough God so they realize they think, okay, there's someone there to comfort me, and, but just enough of them so they feel like they can still make the choices they want to do for their life. You, you can do that, and you can grow a church. People want some sort of affirmation from that. That's one way you can grow a church, and it's effective. If you want to grow a church, if you want to increase the number. Unfortunately, I wouldn't want to be one of those guys when I have to face God one day. Because the second way to grow a church is to say, Lord, help me just to love and serve whoever comes to this church. I'm not just saying me, I'm talking about all of us. Help us to love and to serve those who are around us. Help us to look out for those that are in need out of a fear of you. And as your Holy Spirit encourages us and comforts us that we belong to you because of Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord. And you know what happens? God adds to the church. Now, you guys, if you've been here for any long time, you know I could care less about numbers. I'm not that bothered about numbers. But I am concerned about souls being added to the kingdom, whether they stay in servant's church or not. So we want to have this kind of heart. The inside threat to restoration is our own sinful hearts. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus is about what God's done through Jesus, what God does by his spirit to take out those broken hearts and to give us a heart of flesh, a transformed heart that begins to want what God wants and begins to be the way God wants us to be. It demonstrates that as we love each other.